Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. Angeles, California. The name conjures up images of a sun-drenched paradise populated by the rich and famous. But beyond the beachfront mansions, designer boutiques, and Hollywood parties is a violent underworld. Its inhabitants live and die in a vast war zone that stretches across LA County, home to more than 900 street gangs. Bloods and Crips rule throughout Compton and South Central. This is one of the most bloodiest places in the world. But we like to think that it's a pretty dangerous place to live, L.A. The more violent you are, the more people you beat up, the more people you shoot, you stab. It's like a badge of honor. The Bloods and their arch rivals, the Crips, rank among the most powerful and notorious gangs in L.A. The City of Angels is also the gang capital of the world. That's how gangbang goes. We kill one of them, they come kill one of us. Okay, everybody back up, back up. Did you see who did it? Did you see who did it? Back up, back up, back up. You see everybody's hands. Urban warlords, once organized to protect their neighborhoods, now fight for territory and power. The more streets that you control, the bigger your gang is. And they'll destroy anyone who gets in their way. Tony Moreno thrived and survived as an LAPD gang detective in South Central Los Angeles for three decades. His expert reputation is worldwide. Tony's father played a huge role in his success with a no-excuses approach to life. Well, well, I was born in in East L.A., which is, you know, back then, lower-income lower area, uh, gang area, predominantly Hispanic or Latino. But I had a really good, I was lucky because I had a very good, um, hardworking father and a loving mother. But my dad was, you know, by far the most important influence in person in my life. He didn't let me get off with excuses. Where I see a lot of parents nowadays give their kids excuses and they support their kids or that's fine. But back then, if I would tell my dad when I was in the seventh grade, and I got a D in my report card because I don't think the teacher likes Mexicans. He wasn't going to stand for that. He said, well, you, you, you figure out a way to make that work and make him like you and, and like your work. So I couldn't excuse my way out of things. And that, that came in handy as I got older. Uh, it was driven into us what is right and what is wrong. You respect people. You respect authority. After Tony was hired by the Los Angeles Police Department, from the very start, he had his eye on a gang assignment working in South Central. Having grown up around street gangs, he held a built-in head start advantage. I was living out 
in West Covina, and I wanted to go work in South Central L.A. because I heard that's where it's busy. You know, that's where, you know, and I I really wanted to go there, and when they, when I was graduating, they give you three choices of where you want to go. So this thing about LAPD, it's a big organization, so it's almost like the military. There's a lot of uh, different job opportunities and stuff going on. So I wanted to go to um, Newton 77th, and I think it was Rampart. So I live in West Covina, and they sent me to, to Van Nuys Division, which is across the city in the San Fernando Valley. So well, the, the interesting thing was when I got there, the the station itself was situated in a, like in a barrio in a Mexican neighborhood. They had gangs. I was the third or fourth Spanish speaker in the whole division, and my Spanish was not great. I would nauseate my Spanish teacher in high school, but I had to learn to use it. Then the other thing, what I realized when I got to the street and I had a training officer, whenever we would stop like some of the low riders or some gang members, I, I knew a lot of stuff already, kind of like picking it up through osmosis growing up, because I'd been around gang members, going to school, playing ball, family members, a lot of stuff I already knew, so that gave me an advantage as far as being effective and being a good young officer. Tony learned the value of extending respect and dignity to all people, treating them with honesty, and how that helped him become a better police officer. I worked with a guy named Al McGilray, and he was a guy that was um, a little rough around the edges. But the weird thing about him was he was a white guy, didn't speak Spanish, but the Hispanic gangsters really respected him, him and would deal with him. For a lot of officers, they didn't. And it was just the thing that he commanded respect, he showed respect, and I really learned a lot about human nature working with him. But see, that, that there taught me a lesson about how you deal with people. My my dad was never a cop, right? But he always told me, he says, I'm not tell you how you do your job, but I can tell you that the better you treat people over the long run, it'll make your job easier. Like you just give people their dignity. People are born with dignity. No matter what you think of them or the situation they're in, they're born with dignity. And when you take that away from them, you start to have problems. So um, I, I developed my personality on the job by seeing what worked best for me and what seeing what didn't work for other officers, what did work and what didn't work, you know. And I knew that to be effective, um, you've got to try to connect with people, not kiss their butt, but just be kind of straightforward and authentic with them. Tony focused his investigations on the Crip and Blood street gangs well before they became a national phenomenon. His key to success? Communication. When I left Van Nuys, I went down to South Central, Newton Street, and I worked there for five years. And that's when I learned Crips and Bloods. And because I was uh, intrigued by them because I wasn't intrigued by Hispanic gangsters and cholos. I'd been around them my whole life. It was like nothing new. The Crips and Bloods, they were different. And nobody, um, 
nobody, people knew them, but they weren't really like common knowledge type thing. So I really worked at getting to, 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 to learn them, learn about the culture, learn about gangs. And, and I wanted to know as much as I could. I was like a sponge. So I would, and the best way to talk, the best way to learn, especially with gangsters is to contact them, talk with them. You know, you're not going to get it all in one conversation, but you know, when when you when you become familiar, you work a neighborhood, people get to know you. It's not a big deal to stand on the corner and talk to somebody. Back then, like I had a, a complaint come in one time when I was looking, working Newton Division to show you how much times have changed. And some little old lady called my captain and complained that I'd bullshit around with the gangsters too much. And the gangster and the captain called me and he goes, I don't want to see you talking to gangsters unless you're arresting them. I thought, that's that's kind of a dumb attitude. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, you know, everything is not black and white. And I don't mean racially, but I mean not one end or the other. There's a, in police work and law enforcement, there's a lot of gray area. And it's how you navigate that gray area, gray area that determines how effective you are. Tony worked in LAPD's Newton Patrol Division, better known on the streets as Shootin' Newton, for the level of violence in that area. It was, it was pretty violent down there, very, very active. You know, it's part of South Central LA, which has the reputation, and it was um, back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was, it was really, really busy. The, the, the big three city-wise, I mean, for gangs were New York, Chicago, and L.A., right? You'd always hear gangs in New York, gangs in Chicago, and gangs of L.A. I worked Crips and Bloods really hard. Tony was on the front lines of defense and a first-hand witness to the crack cocaine epidemic hitting Los Angeles, which pushed the Crips and Bloods into the spotlight. What really was unique about that whole experience is when when the crack epidemic hit, because it hit in South Central L.A. first. Cocaine was coming in from Columbia to South Florida and being sent down to Southern California. Crips and Bloods in Southern California started distributing it all over the country, and that's when everybody became aware of Crips and Bloods. And yeah, we're right there when that happened. I saw it before my own eyes right there with the batter ram and everything else. So it was a unique experience, and um, it changed the way gangs did their job or did, did what they do. You couldn't underestimate them any, any longer. That's the reason you have Crips and Bloods showing up all over the country. It was because of the rock epidemic. It was business. Tony's experience after interacting with thousands of gang members, proved to him that family leadership is the key factor in helping kids avoid gang life. Well, there's different factors for different people, but the one predominant factor is their, is their home life, the family lifestyle. And because I, I would make it a habit of asking gangsters, especially the hardcore ones, what would have changed your life, right? And... They almost, they all, it all comes down to, well, if I would have had somebody in my life that either cared enough or was strong enough to 
kick me in my butt to make me toe the line, I wouldn't have turned out this way. You know, how many of them had a solid, uh, positive male role model in their life? And you'll, you'll hear them say, maybe 10%. So maybe, you know what I'm saying, maybe in, 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 a, in a way, our generation of men, maybe we let society down. But I think, um, I think, especially having the dad I had, I think the, the big factor is the home life. Now, it doesn't have to be a man because I've learned also that you, what, you, what, you, what you really need is strong leadership in the home. Because I've had experience with gang members and their families in South Central back in the day. And I had a couple of gangsters that turned themselves in because their grandmother told them to. And when you walked in the house, you knew who ran the house. It was grandma. And But that's, uh, that's love and respect because they know grandma loves them and will go to bat for them but is not going to pull any punches. You know, and that's what, that's what, you know, that's what people need. So there's a lot of reasons why kids join, you know, like with Hispanic gangs, gang members. You come from another country, and maybe the kid adapts pretty well, the 12, 13-year-old, but the parents might have a culture barrier, a language barrier. They don't feel comfortable going to the school, interacting with the teachers. So that kid is on his own. And he's getting influenced by his friends and what's cool and what gets you attention. And if I feel like an idiot because I don't understand my math in the fifth grade, but if I'm, they call me sleepy when we're out on the street and people are afraid of me and I think that's respect and they scare me, they're scared of me, who, do I rather, who would I rather be? The dummy sitting in the class that I don't feel right or the guy in the corner that people walk around? Tony explains how something as simple as a birthday cake might have made a difference in one gang member's life. Years ago, this gang member was in his 50s, but still a gangster. And I was interviewing him, and I asked him, what, what, is there anything I could have changed you? What happened? He said, you know what? When I was in the fifth grade, the principal brought me into, she saw me in, in the, out in the school, and she said, come to my office. I want to talk to you. So he said, I'm, you know, I'm tenured. 11 years old, 5th grade, wondering what I do now. He's always getting in trouble. And she brought him in. She was, the receptionist said, sit there and wait. She'll be right here. So then the, the principal comes in. The, the vice principal comes in. The secretary comes in. They take him in the office. The school nurse comes in. And he says, and there's a birthday cake. And it has 12 candles on it. And they started singing happy birthday to me. He goes, I had never had that in my entire life. He goes, I broke down and started crying. He says, if I would have had two or three more birthday cakes in my life, I wouldn't have turned out this way. He was in his 50s, and he started tearing up when he was telling him. Tony took his experience from the Newton Division to LAPD's Parker Center headquarters and expanded his expertise citywide to arguably become the leading gang intelligence expert in America. I applied for a job in Parker Center, which in LAPD is the headquarters. And there was about 19 of us applying for the job. And my buddies at Newton said, you won't get it because you have to have like a sponsor. And nobody, somebody, nobody knows you downtown. So I, I went in and I said, well, I'm going I'm to apply for the job. And there was 19 of us. 
and I took the last interview, which goes against logic because you figure an interview board is tired of hearing these interviews by the time they get to you, right? But my mind was, I'm going to race everybody in front of me. And what I told them was, if the Crip Gang, you know, uh, kidnaps Amara's daughter, you're going to have to come down to Newton Street and get me to get her, bring me in to get her back. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, and if you want to compare my notes with anybody, my expertise, not with the other candidates, but anybody in the unit, anybody in this department, bring them in. They looked at me like I was crazy, but I got the job. A common misconception is that gang members of the same set are dedicated to each other. Tony tells us that that is not always the case and how money and politics get in the way. Crips kill a lot of Crips. There's, um, blood and Crips, usually it's on. But usually blood gangs get along with each other in L.A. Crip gangs don't. Because you, you, you have as many Crips dying at the hand of a Crip as you do with blood. So there's, there's a lot more Crips in L.A. too back then. But the other thing, though, is when I when I'm when I'm working and being effective, the best information would come out of people from within the same gang, because it's like people in a big company. There's politics, there's politics, there's egos, there's envy. All that stuff goes on within a gang too. You know that's why a gang member. You can be in a gang with 200 gang members, but a gang leader may only trust five or ten in his inner circle. They don't trust them all. You know, and it's that, that's the way life is, right? And that's, well, law enforcement, same way, agency. But I, my, it's my experience that um, the best information or the, comes from people within the same gang because they have an animosity, but you're an easy way for them to get rid of the problem. And it's politics. That's what it is. Much of Tony's notoriety and his nickname came behind the work car he drove. When I get to Parker Center, they give me my own car. It's a yellow four-door Plymouth Fury. It's like a 79 Plymouth Fury. Nobody wanted it. They called it the banana. They used to make fun of the car. They would use it to go out and buy food for lunch or something. So, But me, they gave me my own car. I took it. And I drove that car for five years. And what happened was, back then, Pac-Man was a big game. The gangsters started, started calling me Pac-Man because of the yellow car. And I didn't like the name. I didn't, I didn't like it at all. But the more you tell them, don't call me that, what do they do? Right, they're brats. They're going to they're call you. So it was also a way, too, with all the rock cocaine, the rock houses, the street sales, Instead of saying, like what they say now, 5 or Popo or whatever, they would say Pac-Man when they see the police coming. But even the guys in black and white didn't know what they were talking about. Right? But anyway, so um, when I, my, my, my division was Newton when they brought me up because everybody, all the investigators had a different division and your job was to know the gangs in that division and what was going on. So I would eventually wind up going down to South Central and Newton in the yellow car with my partner. And I would help the detectives solving cases. I would contact gang members, identify gang members, just have information flowing and flowing. My job was Newton Street was my backyard. 
my job was to know my backyard. So when anything happened down there, I, I knew what was going on. Tony's legend was immortalized in the feature film Colors when actor Sean Penn, playing an LAPD officer named Pac-Man, patrolled the streets of south-central L.A. in a bullet-riddled yellow Plymouth Fury. Color, 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 color. I am a nightmare walking, psychopath talking. King of my jungle, just a gangster stalking, living life like a firecracker, quick as my fuse. Been dead as a death, back the colors I choose. Red or blue, cuz of blood, it just don't matter. Sucker died for your life when my shotgun scatters. Colors. The gangs of LA will never die. Just multiply colors. 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 Actually, I was amused by it because what happened was. Um, I knew they were doing the movie with Sean Penn and Robert Duvall on L.A. gangs and L.A. gang cops. So one of the technical advisors said, well, if you want to write, if it's going to be about LAPD gangs, you need to write with Tony Marino. So I didn't get Sean Penn and Robert Duvall. I got the screenwriter, you know, Robert Schiffer. And he, excuse me, he came down and wrote along with us for one night. We picked him up at Parker Center. I remember him looking at our car, and he goes, this is your car? Yeah. He says, you do gang work You're using this car? Because it was a, a funny-looking car, right? And and I told him, I said, you know what, though? Really, if you're good at what you do, you could drive an ice cream truck and get away with it. You know, if you're good. If you're good. And so he, he rode along. We did a couple things that night that he later put in the movie. A year or two later, the movie came out. I was surprised because they didn't tell us it was going to happen. And one of my partners told me, hey, you know what? I saw the movie. Guess what kind of car they drive? I mean, what? He goes, a yellow Ford or Plymouth. I said, no shit. I was, I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, and guess what they call Sean Penn? I said, what? Pac-Man. I was kind of honored or flattered by it. But as time has gone on, I don't fight it. And it's what people know me as. So it's actually been good for me in the sense that it, you know, I, my good thing is with me and my background is I can back up the reputation. Tony recalls a notorious gang member who had put a hit out for Pac-Man and how he turned the tables. One of the lessons you learn is try to always listen to everybody you can. But there's, and I listen to people that nobody else will listen to, but it's done me some good. And this guy was like kind of a crazy in the neighborhood. And he walked up to me one day. He's never, ever talked to me. And he walked to me and he goes, hey, man, your boy's out here looking for you. I said, what boy? He goes, you know what I'm talking about? And it was a gangster. He was wanted for murder. And he says, he's looking for you. He told me that the guy was looking for me. So when we got, when we got wind of where he was, you know, I brought out 14 of us and we did a surveillance on the, the apartment building. And the other thing the guy told me was, and you better bring the Marines because he ain't going down. He ain't going to go down. So what happened was we did a surveillance uh, on the location. We were there for hours and hours. We did, And he finally came out and it was him. He was starting to drive away and he turned up the street around the corner and I had the yellow car sitting there and he would see me. 
Then he stopped, and he knew he had a Mac-10. So then he started driving away, and I hit him with the car, and I could see him holding the Mac-10 above the steering wheel. And then he, he disabled his car, put, you know, stopped in the middle of the intersection, like in the southwest direction, and I turned really hard, and he got out of the car, and he got one shot off, and I hit him, and the other guys ran up to the car, and they shot him, killed him. And he was en route to kill two more people. In 1984, Tony and his team disrupted a street gang's planned takeover robbery on the eve of the Summer Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Back when the 1984 Olympics were coming to L.A., and the whole world was looking at Los Angeles, and they were worried about the gangs, because they, they figured, you know, just one incident will just make L.A. look so bad and ruin the Olympics and everything else. I had a, um, a gang member tell me, about a week before, he goes, hey, man. He goes, my homies are going to rip off some Olympic buses. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, they had, back then they had, they had buses that were taking tourists from Long Beach up to the Coliseum because the Coliseum, where a, lot of the event, where a lot of the events were happening, is in basically in South Central L.A., right, by USC campus. So he said he knew the buses route because he'd seen them coming up. And what they were going to do was, there was street construction going on. They were going to detour the buses that would have tourists from Europe and everywhere else, make them make a left turn on this one street. And once they make the left turn, the little kids would be in the street playing ball, so the buses had to stop. Then they were going to get on the bus, have a pillowcase, saw shotgun, and go down the road and rob everybody. Money, jewelry, wallets, everything. And they were going to hit two buses. <laughs> you know, and they would have pulled it off, too, because people would have been, like, shocked. What's going on here? What, and, and so my, my, my informant tells me, we're going to do it tomorrow. So I said, oh, really? And he told me the two guys are the main ones involved. So I went and told my, my lieutenant, because I knew he'd, have a, he'd faint almost. Well, what do we do? We call the FBI guy. No, I said, no, we'll take care of it. So we went, got rounded up some members of the squad, knew who the guy, one, the head guy was a parolee, saw him standing on the street. Come on, you're going. What do I do? You're going. So he was, the head, the head guy was out of it. Then the guy with the sawed off, I knew where it was. It was in this, I knew where he kept it in his room. And he was on probation. Well, I knocked on the door. And he and the guy told me, he goes, his grandma is blind, but she likes the police. She'll let you in, let you search. So I knocked on the door, and yeah, she was blind, and I told her who I was. She goes, yes, sir, come on in and search. And I found the sawed off right where he said it would be. And then the, the kid came walking up, and we arrested him, too. So it never happened. <laughs> Nobody ever heard about it, because it never, it never happened. And that's what knowledge does. The drive-by gang shooting of an innocent child sent Tony on a mission to terrorize those terrorizing the neighborhoods he worked in, defending and protecting the good and innocent people living there who needed his help to stay safe. Back in 79 when I was working in Newton Division, and I would carry a little camera around, a little like a brownie with a little flash cube on top, to 
take pictures of gang members. So that's how I was. Re- that's how I was remembering them, getting to know them back then. Have my own little file. Well, a little, a young four-year-old black girl got shot in the chin, riding a tricycle at 69th and Main. Some Hoover Crips drove by, shot at some East Coast Crips, missed, hit her in the chin. And I remember we were there holding her until the ambulance got there. She eventually made it. But I, I kept a picture of her with her bullet through her chin and lodging her throat. And I'd never been so pissed in my life. I was livid. I'm like, how can somebody do this to another, to a little angel and drive off and not care? And that impacted me because I had two kids that age. And I was like, okay, this is, this is war, whether it's moral, spiritual, whatever you want to call it. It's war. So I'm, I'm going I'm to terrorize these people. I'm going to do it ethically, legally, psychologically, but I'm going to terrorize the people that are terrorizing the people. And that really gives me a lot of passion and motivation. Because the pe- people in the busiest neighborhoods in our country, in the worst neighborhoods, they need you the worst. And if you don't, I tell officers, if you don't believe me, you think everybody hates you, go down to your communication and listen to the switchboard. And those calls come rolling in. If they didn't want you, they wouldn't call. Tony reflects on the 1992 Los Angeles riots that followed the acquittal of police officers involved in the beating of Rodney King. I had a squad of, of detectives, and I remember there was chaos out there because there was like two fronts. There was a front in South Central L.A., and there was another front on West L.A., like in the Rampart area, just west of downtown, that was also burning, like in Koreatown. And so what we did was I would take my squads out when we had a mission, made sure we just did what we are supposed to do, made sure we'd come back, get ready for the next one. Well, well, it was chaos out there. It was, you know. But my recollection is uh, of the riots from our end was good because we did what we were supposed to do. We were pretty efficient. Uh, but it was, it was, but here's, a, here's an interesting thing, though. We were work. I was working up in Northeast Division, which is like in Highland Park, Northeast LA. I was talking to some gang members from up there, and they were actually guarding their neighborhood. I said, "Well, what, why is it so quiet up here?" He goes, "Hey, nobody's burning our neighborhood down, man." He says, "We go down to South Central or the West Side, and we'll pick up free stuff like they'll loot or whatever." But he said, "But nobody's burning our neighborhoods down. They were guarding their neighborhoods." That's what was only certain parts of L.A. that were burning back then. Tony applies his spirituality to the law enforcement profession. I was raised in a Roman Catholic home. My mother was a devout Catholic. I was even an altar boy for a little bit, but I didn't last long. I kept laughing and giggling. Seriously. I just thought things were funny. I mean, I couldn't keep a straight face, <laughs> right? Uh, but what that did was influences and hammers home right from wrong. And what you really are talking about is you're a soldier for God. You, you, you begin to realize that you are a soldier against evil. And evil comes in many forms. A lot of my training has been tried to be upbeat and positive. And I think that comes from um, 
my spiritual feelings, my spiritual background. Because I, I feel that that spiritual strength inside me. And one thing I've learned about God is that you are most most content when you're giving. If you were out there risking yourself, trying to make society better, you're giving, you're giving to society. It doesn't matter what people think of you or say, because a lot of them are evil anyway, or they don't, they, they, they don't want you to be as strong as you are. I've been in this for over 50 years on the front line, and I can still laugh and joke and have energy and passion about what I do. So that comes, I think, from having that um, strong religious or spiritual base. Because you always, you always come back to, you know, what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we need to be, what law enforcement people are good at, as they're good at being strong for other people that can't be strong for themselves. Tony is proud of how long he stayed in the game and on the front lines. What I take pride in, Jay, is my longevity and my consistency. It's, I think of like a Cal Ripken or Gary Jeter or Nolan Ryan or Tom Brady, somebody that's done it at a good level consistently for a long time. You know, because law enforcement, as you know, it's competitive. And back in the 80s, I thought if, if L.A. is the center of the gang universe and I could be the best in L.A., who anywhere would be better? Well, there's, there's no way to measure that. There's no way to measure that. It's like saying who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron. You know, that argument goes on forever. My pride comes in saying how long, how long I've been doing this. Tony's professional regret is an unavoidable one common to first responders the impact of crime and violence on children, and often our inability to change that. I wish I would have paid more attention to little kids. And you, you can't raise them all, obviously, but I, wouldn't, I can remember looking back and seeing fear or hope or whatever in their little eyes. You can, I can remember leaving a house and having a little kid look at me and like, they don't want you to leave. Well, what can you do? You know, I can I can remember um, Christmases being at home with the family and my kids under the tree opening presents, and I felt guilty because I knew all the little faces I'd seen at work. Tony has seen the harshest side of humanity. Like the man he is, his lessons learned message is honest, transparent, and simple. It's life is competition. And these young kids nowadays, you know, well, I don't want to be judgmental. Guess what? The world is judgmental. You're going to be judged. When you walk in for a, a, a job interview, you're going to be judged. When you walk in to date a, a girl and you're going to meet her parents, you're going to be judged. So just get ready for it. That's the world we live in. It's not rainbows and unicorns, you know. Tony has written four books on gang life and policing. He is also a highly sought keynote speaker and trainer. He set a positive and inspiring example for those in law enforcement, and he continues in that role today with a passion to educate the next generation of police officers. Go to gangcop.com to find out more about Tony Pacman Moreno. 
Topland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.